remember, if you remember last week, we started our study of Jonah. And we had a lot of things to say about Jonah uh, and that book by way of introduction, because of course tomorrow we start the fast of the Ninevites, so it's good for us to remember all of these things. And I just want to get right into the text because we don't have a whole lot of time. Um, I'm going to read to you from Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. You remember before this, in verses 1 and 2, the Lord God has commanded Jonah uh, that he should go to Nineveh uh, and preach uh, to them repentance because the news of their evil deeds had risen up to him. So what does Jonah do? We read about this in Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. And Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord to Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he gave his fare and boarded it to sail with them from the presence of the Lord to Tarshish. So the Lord God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh. And if you notice the language, he says, go up, go up. To Nineveh. What does Jonah do? He does the opposite of what the Lord commands and he flees in the opposite direction down to Tarshish. And if you read the text carefully, the Lord says that the cry of Nineveh's evil has gone up to him. But Jonah chooses to go down, he chooses to flee by going down. And this geography matters because any worldly person would say that Jonah is moving up in the world by going to Joppa and Tarshish because those two cities at that time were wealthy commercial port cities, right? So Jonah is moving in the direction of the world. He's moving in the direction of civilization. He's going up in the world according to human logic. He's going to these great port cities. Right? He seems to be moving in the direction of wealth and power, but in reality, the more he turns from the face of the Lord, the more he brings himself closer to death. And this mistaken direction is embraced by everyone who leaves their faith, everyone who leaves the church, everyone who abandons their morality in, in exchange for the fleeting Things that the world offers. And later, we know that because Jonah chooses to go down when the Lord commands him to go up, we know that the Lord God allows him to go very down. He goes into the depth of the sea in the belly of the great fish. And so we see that uh, Jonah was allowed to hit rock bottom, right? And it was only when Jonah chose to go down and then the Lord allowed him to go way down. It was only then that Jonah's heart finally went up to God. Right. Before this, his heart was not up with God. He disobeyed God. He chose to go down and choosing to go down is sin. And sometimes when we choose sin, the Lord God, not because he hates us, not because he wants to punish us, but he respects our decisions and he allows us to go down as, down as far down as we want. And then we hit rock bottom 
And then only at that moment do our hearts finally go up to God. And we see that dynamic here uh, in Jonah. So we see this, this geographical tension between the Lord telling Jonah, go up, but Jonah choosing uh, to go down and seeking after his own will. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish was at this time, but some scholars believe that it might have been as far as southwest Spain. Imagine that, southwestern Spain. Uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria meditates that perhaps Jonah wanted to flee from the Lord at such a great distance because there was this idea in the ancient world that um, a god only had power in his territory, in his area. So if you were in, for example, the ancient city of Mesopotamia, they had their gods. They believed, okay, they have Mesopotamian gods, but this Mesopotamian god has no power, let's say, in Israel, right? No power in Egypt. Every god was kind of restricted uh, to his territory. And so St. Cyril says, perhaps Jonah thought that if he went a very, very, very long distance, down away from God, that uh, he would be far from Israel and therefore outside of the jurisdiction of the God of Israel. He thought he would be safe, but clearly Jonah didn't know who he was dealing with. Jonah didn't realize that he was dealing with the Lord God of heaven. Uh, Tertullian wrote about him, a certain headstrong prophet also had run away from the Lord, crossing the sea from Joppa to Tarshish, as if he could escape from God. But God found him not on land or on sea, but in the belly of a beast, where for three days he could not die, or even in that way escape from the eyes of God. So Tertullian, this early Christian writer, says, Jonah thought he could flee as far as he, away as he could from God, but even when he was in the belly of the fish all the way down in the depth of the sea, he still couldn't escape God. God still saw him and God still cared for him even in the depth of the sea and in the depth of his self-will and disobedience. Now we are not really given any explanation as to why Jonah fled from the Lord. Uh, Father Matthew the poor, Abuna Matta Meskin, he meditates that this allows us to contemplate the many reasons why we oftentimes disobey and why we do what is contrary to God's will for us. Some fathers throughout history offer different rationales for why Jonah fled. Uh, Saint Jerome, for example, he believed that Jonah fled because the repentance of the Ninevites, remember Nineveh was a Gentile nation, he thought that that meant it would be the ruin of the Israelite nation. He thought that if the Gentiles believe in God, then there would be no more Israel. And so he didn't want the Ninevites to believe in God. Uh, remember, the Jewish people saw themselves as the chosen people of God to the exclusion of everyone else. They were chosen, no one else but them. And we kind of see that mentality in their dealings with our Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jews, when they deal with our Lord, they do have a certain arrogance and conceit about them. Uh, and so some fathers say this is the reason why Jonah uh, didn't uh, want to go to Nineveh. 
Let's continue reading and see what happens next. Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. But the Lord raised up a wind upon the sea, and a great wave came upon the sea, and the ship was in danger of being shattered. And the seamen were afraid and cried out each to his God. See, they each have their own gods, right? And they threw out the things, the ones that were in the ship, into the sea in order to lighten it for them. But Jonah went into the hold of the ship and slept and snored. Not only was he sleeping, but he was snoring, right? The author of the text makes sure we know that Jonah is in deep sleep and he is snoring. So at first, the Lord spoke to Jonah. First thing, the Lord speaks to Jonah in the beginning of the book. And after Jonah's disobedience, now we see the Lord taking action. The Lord takes action. The English translation that we read in the book of Jonah really doesn't do justice to what the Lord does here in the storm. You read it in English and it's not satisfying or accurate as much as it could be. What the Lord does here is almost as violent as the great flood. Remember Noah in the great flood? What he does here with Jonah and these sailors in the ship is almost as violent as the great flood. And throughout the book of Jonah, we read about the Lord as the sovereign ruler, um, using a great fish, using uh, a plant, using a worm, remember at the end of the story, to help teach Jonah. But in this first instance of bringing a storm, the text tells us that the Lord hurled the wind. And the image in the original text is that it was kind of like a spear. He hurled the wind with violence, right? So I don't know how Jonah could have lived through this. Just the idea that the Lord God is hurling, you know, this storm at me. I don't know how any human could, you know, uh, endure that. But that's what the original language gives us the impression of. That Jonah, that the Lord, I should say, uh, is hurling the wind as though it was a weapon. And the ship had to decide whether it was going to be smashed to bits or not. And this is really quite a reversal in terms of uh, what we know about God, right? I mean, you think about God, and we say about him that he made all things out of nothing, and then he gave order to creation. He divided the water from the land, right? He made boundaries. He protected his creation, right? That's what we know about God. But here in the book of Jonah, after Jonah's disobedience, we see that this little ship that man had created was placed in a state of chaos and disorder by the Lord. As St. Jerome said, a storm arises in a calm. Nothing is secure. Nothing is safe when God is against us. Nothing is safe when God is against us. Now, at this point, we see the entrance of the sailors in the story as new characters in the narrative. And the fact that the sailors call upon all of their different gods to save them tells us that they were not Jews, right? Because if they were Jews, they wouldn't have their own gods. But they're also Gentiles, men of the nations who knew not God. And these poor sailors get caught in the middle of this conflict between the Lord God and Jonah. They have no idea what just hit them. 
They have no idea what's going on and how they can get out of it. But before you think that this is unfair to the sailors, remember the fact that by the time all of this is over, these sailors will be saved and they will call upon God by name. Right? Because you might think, well, it's not fair that the sailors go through all of this for the sake of Jonah. But the Lord God used this terrible experience to bring these sailors, these Gentiles who didn't know him, to bring them to the knowledge of him by the end of the story. And so everything that happens, it's like Joseph said at the end of Genesis, you meant it for evil, but the Lord meant it for good. And it's a good reminder that we always remember the Lord is leading us through a tribulation to something better when we are in the midst of tribulation. Psalm uh, 22 I like to, I've been talking about this recently. Psalm 22, you probably all know it as Psalm 23, but it's not 23 in the Orthodox Church, it's 22. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you read it carefully, it says the Lord, uh, he guides us through the valley of the shadow of death. Through. He could have said in. The psalmist could have said the Lord guides us in the valley of the shadow. In other words, we're born in the valley of the shadow. We live our whole lives in the valley of the shadow. We never come out of the valley of the shadow. He could have said that. But no, the shepherd leads us through. We enter the valley of the shadow, whatever tribulation, whatever hardship, but the Lord leads us through it. And he did that here with the sailors by the end of the story. And so we see that it's not unfair but actually, it's a blessing um, for the sailors to be in the midst of this conflict between the Lord God and Jonah. And hopefully this is enough to blow up all our imagination in modern times as to what fairness should or should not be. Right? Don't we oftentimes exclaim, this is not fair. This is not right. Right? But what are we really saying? According to my will, my logic, my understanding, this is not fair. But the Lord God sees the bigger picture. Can we question the Lord God? His ways are not our ways. And so we see that fairness is not as important as salvation. We are going to go through a lot of unfair things in the world. Firstly, because it's a fallen world. But secondly, because we're being tempted continuously. And thirdly, uh, because the Lord God permits it. He permits us to go through unfairness. Why? For the sake of salvation. Because salvation is more important than fairness. And so we see that none of this really uh, is unfair. We see that instead uh, it is for the sake of their salvation. And Jonah here proves to be a prophet not only to the Ninevites, but also a prophet to the other sailors on the ship with him. Uh, through him, they come to know the Lord God and they are saved, despite his reluctance. Now, in their panic, the sailors begin to throw out all of the precious cargo of the ship, but it didn't help. It didn't help. St. John Chrysostom was Rome. They threw overboard the wares that were in the ship into the sea, but the ship was not getting any lighter because the entire cargo still remained within it. What's the entire cargo here? Jonah. Jonah is the cargo. It doesn't matter what else you throw out. 
Jonah is in the ship, and as long as he's in the ship, nothing's going to happen, right? That's what St. John Chrysostomus says, okay? And so we see that it's Jonah's disobedience, it's Jonah's sin that is weighing down the ship. It's Jonah who is weighing down the ship. Not the things, but Jonah, right? And so not only did sin bring about the storm, but it also weighed down the ship so much that it couldn't escape and it was about to be destroyed. Those of you who have sadly uh, experienced crippling sin, you know exactly what this feels like. You're weighed down. You're depressed. You feel like you can't move. You can't get up. You feel like, I just can't, right? This is what crippling sin does to us. It weighs us down. But we have repentance and we have confession. And those, that mystery, that sacrament, enables us to unburden our soul of all of the sins, all of the shortcomings that weigh heavily upon us. The problem for the sailors was that Jonah the prophet was still on the ship with the great weight of his sin. And I just want to pause here and as a side note, I want to try to offer some guidance and some help uh, for any of you who feel like you're under the weight of crushing sin uh, or depression or whatever. Sometimes you come to the church and we tell you the message, well, you have to pray, you have to do this, you have to do that. I'm going to tell you right now, you don't have to do that as the first thing. It would be nice, yes, for you to pray and eventually. But here's what I want you to do to help you be lifted from the depression. Sit down and just remember that God loves you. That's it. Just remember that God loves you. Because when we are in sin, sometimes you know, we, feel, we know what we need to do as Orthodox Christians. I need to confess. I need to receive communion. I need to pray. I need to do this. But sometimes we just don't have the power to do so. We're crippled. We're struggling. Okay, if you're struggling, how about this? Remember that God loves you. Because the more you remember that God loves you and the more you think of specific examples of his love for you, the more you will be motivated to show love back, right? And showing love back, well, that's confessing. Well, that's praying. Well, that's attending the liturgy, etc., right? So if you are under the weight of sin and you feel like you can't go anywhere, sit and just remember that the Lord God loves you. Now, throughout this whole ordeal, Jonah was asleep in the lowest part of the ship. Remember, again, I want to highlight the geography. God tells him, go up. He goes down to Joppa, right? And then even when he's on the ship, he's down in the very lowest part of the ship. That geography is important. Why, why would the author tell us that he's in the lowest part of the ship? Because God told him to go up. But through his disobedience, he goes down to Joppa, down into the depth of the ship, and eventually down in the belly of the fish into the depth of the sea. God says, go up. His disobedience leads him way, way down. Okay? So Jonah is in the depth of the ship. And in this regard, it's like he is dead to the world and he is dead to the Lord's commandments. And it's no wonder then why the Holy Church reminds us as we begin the midnight praise, the very first thing we sing in the midnight praise is a hymn, Tenthino, the translation of which is, Arise, children of the light. 
get up, right? Arise, okay? In many ways, we resemble disobedient Jonah without really noticing, uh, being quite capable of sleeping through disasters uh, and unconscious of the ruin that we oftentimes bring upon others by our actions, by our fallenness, by uh, our brokenness. Let's continue reading Jonah 1, 6 and 7. And the captain came to him and said to him, How are you snoring? Rise up and call upon your God so that God might deliver us and we might not be destroyed. So each said to his neighbor, Come, let us cast lots so that we might know on account of whom this evil is among us. So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. So in this passage, the captain the one who is responsible for the steering the ship and the safety of the ship, uh, he realizes he is now powerless to guide the ship to safety in the midst of the storm. St. John Chrysostom said, in this situation, a greater pilot, a greater captain was needed. The pilot who governs the whole world, right? The captain was now beyond, it was beyond his power. There's nothing that he could do any longer and assistance from above was required. For this reason, St. John continues, they abandoned the oars, the sails, the ropes, and everything else. They drew their hands back to themselves and raised them to heaven and prayed to God. So the captain and the sailors realized there's nothing more that we can do with our specialized sailing knowledge. Let's throw away the sails. Let's throw away the oars. Let's throw everything away and instead lift up our hands and entreat God. It's a good reminder to us of all the circumstances in which our own logic, our own skill, our professional training is not the answer. Those things are good, yes. They definitely help us. But those things are not the ultimate answer in these circumstances. Sometimes you need God and He's the only one who can provide um, the solution. The good thing about the captain in the story is that he acknowledged it. Remember, this is a Gentile, right? This is not someone who knows God. But he quickly realizes we need to entreat God. And so that's the good thing about him. And I hope we all can be like the captain and understand, okay, this is beyond my hands. Now I need God. Now I need the church. Now I need, you know, things that are beyond my own power. So what does the captain do? Interestingly here, not only does the Lord command Jonah to rise up, but the captain says to Jonah, rise up, right? So God tells him, rise. He chooses to go down. He's in the depth of the ship. And now a Gentile captain comes to him and says, rise up. This geography of up and down is very important in the story uh, of Jonah. And so Jonah is commanded to rise up by the captain of a Gentile ship. And it's a consistent reminder to Jonah and to all of us to get up. To get up and to be what we are called to be. To get up from our laziness, to get up from not caring, to get up from having a cold heart, and to be what the Lord God wants us to be. And now in the story, we have this intricate dialogue between everyone on the ship, including Jonah. And I think one of the most beautiful aspects of this dialogue and the story 
is how the text refers to all of them as neighbors, as neighbors. Right? It calls them neighbors. Remember, Jonah claims he fled from the Lord's commission because he didn't want to preach to this Gentile city of Nineveh, right? He doesn't want them to be saved. Now he's on a battered ship in the midst of a great storm, and he is with Gentiles. But now how does he see them? Neighbors. Neighbors. Before that, it was, well, I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile. I'm better than you. I can't dine with you. I can't look at you, right? Separation. But now, in the midst of this uh, tumultuous sea, he sees the, the Gentile sailors as his neighbors. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is the one that you're supposed to love. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is the one that you do good towards. That's your neighbor. And this is a common problem in the world today, right? I think a lot of you are old enough to remember. I certainly remember. I'm not that, not that old, hopefully. But I remember growing up, the message of society was, we're all one, right? It doesn't matter where you come from, what language, we're one. But now the world is offering the opposite message. You are from this group and you've been oppressed by that group. And so you should rise up and demand that this group pay you whatever because of the oppression. Like now it's all about division, right? And that's kind of what we see here. But we need to be more like Jonah and the sailors on the ship. And we need to understand every person is our neighbor. Now, it doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter whether they're Christian or not Christian, Orthodox, Catholic. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether they're living in sin. It doesn't matter whether they make themselves to be our enemies. It doesn't matter whether they choose to hurt us. It doesn't matter. They are our neighbor and we must offer good and love to them. So now Jonah and the sailors, they cast lots so that they might determine on account of whom this great evil has come upon them. And notice the word evil here in the text, evil, right? At the beginning, evil was used to describe Nineveh, right? Go up to Nineveh because the evil of their sins has risen up to me, says the Lord. So at the beginning of the story, the evil was Nineveh. But now... What's the evil? Jonah's disobedience. That's the evil at this point of the story. The lot fell on Jonah. Of course, it wasn't pure luck. It was the Lord's will in guiding the lot. And, you know, here our minds turn. We remember uh, the holy apostle Matthias, how he was chosen when the apostles cast lots to replace Judas. And until this uh, time... In the Coptic Orthodox Church, we choose our Pope and Patriarch, the next successor of the See of St. Mark. We choose him by a lot. We draw a lot from the altar after uh, fasting and uh, celebrating the liturgy, and a child draws the name, and that name is the name of the next uh, Pope and Patriarch uh, of the Coptic Orthodox Church. One of the many ways that the Coptic Orthodox Church preserves Scripture and actually lives it, literally, right? So we read in Acts how they chose lots to replace Judas. So we choose lots for our next pope, who is a successor uh, of the apostles. The lots tell the sailors that Jonah is the guilty one, but they are soon to realize as well that he is the Lord's chosen one. 
And this will cause them great fear, but it will also be for their salvation. Uh, let's go on and read uh, Jonah chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. Um, and they said to him, Tell us, what is your occupation? And from where did you come? And out of which country? And from which people are you? And he said to them, I am a servant of the Lord, and I revere the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So the men feared with a great fear and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do for you so that the sea might calm down for us? Because the sea was going about and raising up with greater waves. And Jonah said to them, Take me and throw me into the sea, and the sea will cease from you, because I know that this great wave is upon you on account of me. So the men tried very hard to return toward the land, but they were not able, because the sea came and raised up even more upon them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, By no means, O Lord, let, let us perish on account of the life of this person, and do not place upon us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done in whatever manner you wished. And they took Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped from its raging, and the men feared the Lord with great fear, and they sacrificed an offering to the Lord and made vows. So now we have all of the sailors addressing uh, Jonah as one unit, and by all means, they are beating around the bush with their questioning. They could have just asked, Jonah, what did you do that all of this has come upon us and the lot fell upon you? But instead, they're very polite. Even in the midst of this raging sea, they're still very polite. And so they ask in a roundabout way these different questions. Uh, what people are you from? Uh, what nation? Uh, who do you worship? Who's your God? Right? They ask all these roundabout questions. And then in the midst of their questioning, they realize they're dealing with someone special. Now, interestingly in the text, Jonah does not answer directly. He doesn't say, my name is Jonah. He doesn't say, my name is Jonah uh, and I am from, you know, Israel. He does not say that. But instead, he identifies himself as a servant of the Lord. And then for the first time in the story, he speaks the name of the Lord. And in response, the sailors come to a turning point in their own lives. We're told that they feared with a great fear. Up until that point, they feared the storm, they feared the waves, they feared the destruction of the ship. But once they hear the name of the Lord, their fear is different. Now they have a great fear. They fear the Lord God of heaven, whom David describes as a great God, a great king above all gods. And from this moment, these Gentile sailors believe in God and they are eventually saved. The sailors then question Jonah and they apply their logic to determine what can be done so they might be saved. And Jonah answers them with a very strange response. He says, throw me into the sea because I know that all of this has come because of me. And here we have the first time that Jonah acknowledges his guilt. The first time that Jonah offers something like a repentance. He confesses in front of the Gentile sailors. And we see uh, in the sailors' response, we see their nobility because initially they refuse Jonah's request, right? Jonah says, throw me into the sea. What do they do? They try to row even harder. 
they try whatever they can, last ditch effort, to get the ship going in the right direction, but it doesn't work. Instead of throwing Jonah in the sea and saving themselves, they stick to their orders and they try to uh, move with greater force in the sea, but their efforts are futile. Uh, because again, what is man's work compared to the Lord's? The waves of the sea become more violent and they are at risk of perishing. And at this point, and we're going to end with this point, at this point we have the very first prayer in the entire book of Jonah, but it doesn't come from Jonah. It does not come from Jonah, the prophet, right? The one who knows God, no. It's a sincere prayer to the one true God from the mouth of the Gentile sailors. They're the ones who offer the first prayer in the book of Jonah. They ask God not to allow them to perish on account of Jonah, but at the same time to spare them of Jonah's innocent blood. They're saying to God, okay, we're going to do what the prophet tells us. We're going to throw him into the sea. But please, O Lord, don't hold us accountable for his death. Don't hold us accountable for his innocent blood. And we now have the beautiful image of these prayerful sinners lifting up the body of Jonah the prophet, which I mentioned to you was weighed down with sin and disobedience, uh, while the latter submits and offers himself into the depth of the sea for the salvation of these Gentile sailors. Do you see the image? Do you see the image? Think about Christ being lifted up onto the cross for the sake of the Gentiles. And now you understand, why does the church say Jonah was in the belly of the great fish as Christ was in the tomb for three days? Jonah is a type of Christ. And here, as the Gentiles pray, and they lift up Jonah, and Jonah is sacrificed into the depth of the sea for the sake of the salvation of these Gentile sailors, we see clearly how he is a type of Christ, uh, and all of the fullness of Christ's salvation. We'll end uh, with this for today. Uh, that's about 35 minutes. It's a good uh, amount. And Sunday school is going to be finished soon. Any questions on what we covered today or any comments?